1: Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories.
0: Michael Lim is a seriously interesting person. He's a manager at YLAB Global, which is the social enterprise arm of the Foundation for Young Australians. He's had a really, really mixed background right across the field of entrepreneurship of education of making a difference in the world he's originally from singapore he's been occupying a space in melbourne for quite a while now he's got lots and lots of interesting things to say and more importantly stories to tell about what he's been doing as a game changer i can't wait to talk to him adriano let's go
1: Well, Phil, I'm really, really excited to have Michael with us today, uh, particularly about through his work with the Lab and, of course, the Foundation for Young Australians, which has been an outstanding organisation that has formed so much of, uh, or informed so much of my thinking over time. But before we get to Michael, Phil, how are you travelling up there in the second best city
2: of of Australia?
0: Much better than uh, you might have imagined at the moment. The sun is out and we can go for a walk, Adriano are you coping down there in sunshine?
2: I know
1: that you like to to rub it in every now and then, the fact that you have all these freedoms, but just remember that wonderful princess uh, boat that probably started all this pandemic in this (laughs) country. And I'm just going to blame the New South Wales uh, government and you people up there for the crisis that we find ourselves in here in beautiful and glorious Melbourne, one of the most livable cities in the world, even in lockdown. Anyway, over over to uh, introducing Michael. Michael, thank you very much for being uh, with us today. Uh, I'm going to jump straight into it, Michael. And and this is a question that we ask all of our guests. The very first question is, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, thanks Phil, thanks Adriana for having me on this podcast. Really excited to be here. My story really begins um, through my own high school journey like many other guests on this podcast. Um, I always describe myself as a shit student but an excellent learner. Um, And it's a perfect way to really summarize the experience that I had up until my year nine education. So up until then, I was a terrible student, as I mentioned before, and it was going down a path where I felt that I was disengaging from school, didn't really see the point of it, and the legitimacy of the education system wasn't very high in my eyes. But my school had a really interesting program in year 10 where they aimed to re-engage disenfranchised young men back into the education system. So, I went to a co ed school, um, which is based in the West. But this program really looked at how can we tailor a program so that it suits the individual learner? You know, how can we have a curriculum that is relevant to them? And how can we engage the parents and the broader ecosystem that supports a student into the design of this program? So, th- this was like a very innovative program at the time, and it still is. Um, And there was in many ways that it came about way before this current conversation we have about, you know, different models of education. And there was a lot of different things, you know, that this program did for me. Um, You know, I really saw my teachers as mentors um, for the first time in my educational career up until that point. You know, I already had someone ask me, what do you want to learn this year? And I was forced to come up with an answer and pitch it to my parents, to my teachers. And to the school principal at the time, which was crazy to me that I could learn whatever I wanted, self-directed, but have the support of the teachers. It was the first time that I actually felt empowered about my education. And I was 16, well, 16, year 10 at that point. But what it really taught me is how a system can encourage a young learner and how a system just done a little bit differently could discourage a learner. It was exactly the same school. It was pretty much exactly the same teachers, but what was different about it? And that's what really got me thinking about systems. And there's a really great quote that I like to use when I form all the work that I do is that every system by its definition is designed perfectly to get the results that it gets. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So if we have a system that, you know, disengages a large proportion of its students, discourages learners while well, this system is not right and i started to really delve into what well then what is a system and there are sort of three parts that i really understood the system to be one is its components the second it's interconnections and the third one is its purpose and if you think of the analogy of a tree for instance the components of a tree are its leaves and its branches the interconnections are the veins and arteries that deliver the nutrients from the roots all the way to the leaves and the branches but what is the biological purpose of a tree well it's to inhale carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen but if you reverse the purpose of a tree you know we would cut down every single tree there was Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing if you change the purpose of education and you know I don't have to tell you know yourself and um, feel about this, but if you change the purpose of the education system, you would achieve radically different results.
0: So, Michael, can I just can I just cut in there? What yeah. do you see as the purpose of the education system?
2: Well, the, I think the original purpose of the education system at the moment is really a continuation of its history, has being part of the industrial revolution. I mean, every everything about how a school is set up at the moment for the most of the schools is very much that factory assembly line um, method. But I would think the real purpose of the education system fundamentally should be about fostering curiosity and interest in a young person. As simple so as that. So
0: if I can just, that, that's great for the, the fostering of curiosity and interest and, and engagement in learning. Michael, I want to take you back to what you said, uh, the rather disparity in comments about yourself as a student. <laughs> because, you know... You've been a CEO of a volunteer organisation, you have won awards for excellence in that work, you're a non-executive director at another organisation, you're a committee member, you're a podcast co-host, you're a manager at y Lab. This is not someone who's a bad student, this is not someone who's a poor learner. So tell me about that dislocation because simply contrasting those two potential purposes for education tells us something about you and tells us something about your perception of what learning should be in our times
2: yeah i think it's a, it, i think it's really interesting and i always go back to that mark twain quote where he says you know i never let school get in the way of my education and i'd always describe myself as a great learner but a shit student so i never really liked to be told what to do but i love to learn so i you know i love self-directed learning through books and whatever it may be and really getting into the nitty gritty of things. And it's that experience that I had through my high school education and that experience of the education system that really informed a lot of the work and a lot of the education that I went on to get through university as well as my work through sort of YLAB and Chase. So after that experience in my my high school, I really thought about systems and I got really, really fascinated with the education system. I thought, if this is how it works, why can't we change the purpose a little bit so that more young people are able to be empowered through this system? And, um, you know, I dove into an honours thesis looking at, you know, social equity and the education system through Australia's education policy since the Whitlam era. Um, and you know, I really didn't understand, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into through that honours thesis. Um, and just realising you know, how opaque and complex the Australian education system really is, um, comparatively around the world. Um, so that's, that experience has really informed a lot of the different things that I, that I do, and I never really intended to you know, be a non-executive director or become a CEO of a volunteer organisation, or even in, in this work with YLAB at the moment, but I just got really fascinated with systems and how you can change, you can slightly change the purpose of a system And you can fundamentally change the results that it gets. Because every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets.
0: Well, every system would like to be perfectly designed, although perhaps imperfect systems do things better because human beings are imperfect rather than perfect. I just want to take you to that notion of what you were interested in doing. Because if I was to listen carefully to my uh, Melbourne-centric art teacher friend, which sometimes I do, He would talk to me and he would talk to us about the importance of self-determination, that the way in which we engage in education and the way in which we engage in the world is through our capacity to plot a course for ourselves. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily about having intentions to do things because, you know, some, some people are great at planning their lives and other people, it just kind of happens to them along the way. It's more about the choices we make along the way what are some of the more important choices you think you made as a young person um or an even younger person mm-hmm. that have enabled you to get to where you've got to today
2: yeah i think that's a great question phil uh, and looking back on it i think one of the biggest choices that i'm really proud that i made was following my own curiosity rather than following the expectations of others and when I actually went on to university after high school, um, one of the expectations that had me that I, that I would become a lawyer. So, you know, I'm the first generation child of immigrant parents from Singapore. So they don't take exactly a, a long leash to that what their children do as an occupation. So it was through that university experience where I did a subject in my second year called public policy making. And it was through that subject where I actually got to explore the concept of policy and what policy means and its impact it can have, and one of the policies that I actually examined was the HECS system, so the higher higher education contribution system, and the exercise that we went through was really looking at how has the HECS system impacted Australia since its introduction in the late 80s, um, and with the knowledge that you have now retrospectively, you know, critique the policy um, with the knowledge that we have in 2015 because this project was back in 2015, and from there I Got really fascinated with policy and the impacts that it could have for education—not just higher education policy, but you know, any policy that impacts education or employment um, or even health literacy. So one of the biggest things that I learned, now looking back on it, is really being able to follow that curiosity that you that you innately have as a young person, and to never let expectations or you know other pressures diminish that light of curiosity, because it's such a powerful thing. If you can make a young person curious.
1: It's a fascinating conversation that I'm sitting here listening to uh, Michael and in particular your journey to, to this point. I want to push this a little bit further though and extend on, on what Phil's exploring here. What I was hearing was not that Michael Lim was a shit student, I'm using your language, what I was hearing was that there was a point in your educational journey where a transformation occurred and that transformation occurred where where you recognise the system as you knew it, an industrial one as you describe it, and one I would describe as well, moved from the mechanics of the industrial system of producing a product, and recognised that it is an ecosystem, one that breathes, one that's organic, one that's fluid, because every young person is home to a life, and you touched upon the phrase mentorship or mentoring and I know that's something that we'll explore a little bit further too in in, in the work that you do with with YLAB and and many young people but I am I'm interested in pushing this a little bit further because this transformation just didn't happen at that moment this curiosity that you have about life and learning and work and systems didn't just evolve overnight it's something that's evolved over a period of time you've also just shared with us that you had some cultural pressures of course cultural pressures uh, because of your ethnic background to go down a particular path and, and being a product of migration, uh, you know first generation migrant, I know exactly uh, what that pressure what that pressure is like. So you are in some ways countercultural to that mm-hmm. pressure. So where does where does this kind of disruptive thinking yeah and, and curiosity about the things that are within you and the things that are around you? Where did that really emerge? Can you think of a moment or a time or an experience where perhaps that was most amplifying?
2: Yeah, wow. I think that's a, that's a great question. I would argue that I couldn't really pin it down to an exact moment. Sure. As you mentioned, you know, it's sort of a very slow evolution. And I think over time, I've been slowly being able to build um, that sense of curiosity about whatever I do and really getting and making that connection with what am I doing today? Am I curious about it? And is it something that I'm gonna remain curious about? So I don't necessarily think it was a particular destination that I reached or a finish line that I was gonna cross, but more so, more so that a lifestyle that I'm gonna lead and a direction that I should be following in. Um, so it was really going and just continually keep following that curiosity rather than thinking I'm gonna cross, I'm gonna to get to this point in my life where I'm gonna know everything Um, and be really happy with where I am, but instead just keep pushing for new ventures and really just exploring what makes me curious and constantly keep asking my question.
1: So there's something that clearly burns inside of you, Michael, something that burns inside of you to push back against some of these uh, practices or frameworks that are no longer serving our community and particularly our young people. And there's something profoundly interesting about the work that you've been doing as a responsible citizen as someone that, that can keep contributing to their local community. And you've been really active in the bring Bank, you know community space. Mm. Uh, and and I've seen many of your posts that have been quite vocal about why why have we even seen spikes of COVID in, in this particular area. I, I share the same kind of um, area as you do, living in sunshine here. Uh, and, and, you know, the Brimbank kind of council space. Mm. So tell our audience a little bit about what it is that has got you to this point of being this responsible citizen where you really genuinely feel it's significant for you to contribute to the broader community.
2: I just saw a community as really an extension of another system. And, um, you know, as I became more aware of the stark geographic divides and educational outcomes in Melbourne, in Victoria, along, you know, geographic postcodes and geographic lines, you know, it really starts to manifest into other things that you start to see. So not only do we see worse educational outcomes in education in Melbourne's West, but we see things such as, you know, the current health outcomes that we see with the distribution of COVID-19, but also employment outcomes. You know, Melbourne's West, and in particular, Brimbank has the highest rates of youth unemployment in Victoria. I mean, that's astounding for a metropolitan area. Um, and it has the 12th highest rates of youth unemployment in Australia. Um, that, that is actually an incredible statistic. And it's looking at what are the factors or the confounding co- co- factors that really contribute to exacerbating unemployment in Melbourne's West. And when you start to look at the system, and as you mentioned before, the ecosystem of employment, you know, what are the things that prevent a young person from being able to access meaningful employment opportunities? and again it goes back to that evolution of I've just been really curious about why systems function the way that they do and if we can work with this ecosystem of employees, employers, um, local government and you know private corporations we might be able to create an ecosystem that systematically reduces the barriers for young people rather than putting up more or additional barriers for young people accessing meaningful employment. So I've been really really vocal and really passionate really about Melbourne's West because fundamentally it is a place that I've grown up in it's a place where I've lived for most of my life it's a place where I've worked it's a place where I've gone to school so I share such a strong connection to the community that my work informs that and my connection to the community informs my work you know it's a place where my family and friends live so for me the work that I do with YLAB Um, doesn't end at five o'clock. You know, I'm working in the community pretty much 24-7. For me, I feel accountable to my local community. I feel accountable to the local young people we partner with. Um, And I feel such a strong connection to that that it's just, yeah, the sense of ownership and responsibility that places on me uh, makes me really passionate about my work, but also constantly keeps me curious about what we could do in terms of a policy change or driving change through policy um, local to bring back?
1: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating uh, listening to you, Michael, because it's very clear that so much of your purpose is around the people and the place, and of course the practice of, of trying to help them um, be better than they were yesterday and trying to change their circumstances. You've spent a considerable amount of time of your work working to improve health literacy, for students experiencing disadvantage in Melbourne's western suburbs. Yeah. You talk specifically about that particular work with our audience.
2: Yeah, so you know, another lifetime ago, um, uh, I was the CEO of Community Health Advancement and Student Engagement, or Chase for short. And what we aimed to do was improve health literacy among Year Eleven BCAL students in Melbourne's West. Mm-hmm. So at the time, we worked with five schools across Melbourne's West. We had about something like two hundred and fifty students um 100 plus mentors who went into these schools but it was really just working at the intersection of health and education so again for some context melbourne's west has some of the highest rates of non-communicable diseases so things like diabetes heart disease and it was really looking at what is the gap that is missing in this ecosystem that's supporting young people and a lot of it has to do with they're not given the meaningful opportunities to educate themselves nor meaningful opportunities to access knowledge, um, or have the mentors in their life that are able to be a positive role model for them. So with this program, what we wanted to do was have peer-to-peer mentoring where a university student who's only, you know, maybe four or five years older than them, goes back into these high schools that are in Melbourne's West, predominantly public schools, and working with VCAL students so that they're able to increase their own sense of health literacy. So that's where we started, but also to increase their social, networks and also their capital their own social capital one of the things that we know about melbourne's west is that young people have strong social capital in bonding social capital so they've got strong networks and family and friends but not necessarily in bridging capital which is a capital that bridges them to meaningful opportunities maybe in further education and or employment so this program was 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 the entryway through health literacy but what we were trying to do is really improve that ecosystem that supports young people through education through mentorship um, and to access to opportunities um, this work someone that i was really inspired by was in my third year of uni i did an internship with western chances so they provide economic scholarships to young people in melbourne's west experiencing disadvantage so very similar mission uh, very similar aims and i was really inspired by the work that they did there i thought it was really amazing and yes they provided scholarships but what they really provided was social support and that's such a big thing for young people in melbourne's west is that they might not have anyone in their immediate family or excuse me or in their immediate networks that's anyone that actually believes in them and what we wanted to do was yes we have uh, we want to improve your health literacy but we also want to be able to provide that social network where you can not only survive, but also thrive in post-high school life.
0: That of itself is absolutely fascinating. You know, when when we talk about the notion of connecting in that sort of way, it really picks up on the belonging side of civic character. Part of the research we do, Michael, um, is into the you know, character and competency and wellness and, and, the, and the whole of learning that prompts it. And the starting point is belonging. But and it's very hard to go on to the to 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 perform well, to achieve your potential and to do what is good and the right right in the world, unless you belong first. But then you have to go on to do those things. And our colleague Brad Adams, who's the senior partner in our organization, he would talk about, he's Canadian, so you know, North American, he would talk about special sauce. You know, and the, <laughs> the, the special sauce of any community is the way in which you inspire, you challenge and you support. You know, there's so much of what you're talking about here that is, you know, that's that showing the way in which you are a lived uh, case study, if you like, of the responsible citizen. Can I share with you, if I can, just some of those features? Because you've already been talking about it. Mm. You're prepared to put the common interests and the needs of others before yourself. You've got a very, very clear mission uh, around your purpose, your people, your place, your practices. Adriano said, and it's squarely centered around Western Melbourne. You've spent time grounding yourself in service that helps you to to know about discerning and balancing and meeting the needs of others you've thought about pathways and systems and processes you're very much disposed towards shared goals and culture over personal ambition although you've got very strong willpower and you very much reflect on the the relationship between that lived citizenship yours and your perspective and that's that's what we would call a responsible citizen we're interested about how that all crystallizes in your work with the foundation for young australians and why lab tell us about the work that you've been doing there what you've been doing why you've been doing it and and mm. how it's really making a difference
2: well thanks for that. i really appreciate that i guess i've never really thought about it like that um but i really appreciate you saying that i guess my work with um, the Foundation for Young Australians through the social enterprise arm YLAB is really just an extension of the connection that I share with Melbourne's West. So I'll start from the beginning is that YLAB is a social enterprise that focuses on putting young people with lived experience of an issue at the centre of designing and developing solutions to complex social challenges. So a lot of my work takes me to Melbourne's West really looking at education and employment. and One recent project that we had was really looking at the unemployment rate in Brimbank and looking at how can we combine co-design, place-based interventions, social procurement and partnerships to really redesign the ecosystem that supports young people in employment. So it's looking at both the supply and the demand side of things. And through this project, we recruited, trained and paid eight local young people in Brimbank to redesign policies related to recruitment, retention and training. So these were the three areas that young people, um, local young people uh, saw as barriers to them finding meaningful employment. And we wanted to be able to work with both the potential employees and the employers to design solutions to some issues related to employment.
1: Well, that's really interesting, Michael. You've taken what Phil has had to share with you just there about what a responsible citizen is and and you've, kind of place that over the top of the the outstanding work that you've been doing with the Foundation for Young Australians and, and YLAB. I'm interested in exploring the Foundation of Young Australians a little bit further in this particular space. What, in your experience, has been the one most significant piece of research that that organisation has undertaken that would require schools in particular to adopt a total reset because what you've just shared with us mm. is, is not only imperative for the broader local community of, of the Western region, but it is also a framework in many ways for the solution of what a school for tomorrow could be. Mm. So can you just, can you can think about that, that piece of research that may have influenced that kind of thinking that, that would force a reset in, in our schooling paradigm?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the new work order research really looks at how, you know, flexibility, automation and globalisation is going to impact not only schools and education like you mentioned Adriana but also employment for the future mm-hmm. um, I think the biggest takeaway from that research I, I can't really point to sort of one research report but it would have to be maybe the new work mindset so really looking at the job clusters um, and the seven different job clusters that categorize most if not all jobs so it's really looking at you know 4.2 million job advertisements um, and we reclassified them in sort of seven different job clusters and I'm going to forget. Um, what they are off the top of my head. But the implications there was that there are some clusters that are declining, um, which are any you know any occupation that is sort of rules-based, manual and repetitive. Um, there are some job clusters that are gonna stay stagnant over the next couple of years and also decades. But then for the implications there, there are also job clusters that are gonna grow into the future, such as technology, healthcare, um, and anything that's related to uh, you know, personal services or social services. So I think that's really fascinating research especially for a young person choosing their career now more so than ever because it has strong implications for the skills that they will need to learn and that young people won't just be working one job but rather they'll have a portfolio of different jobs across a whole lot of different careers so it's really looking at what skills do we need to embed in our education system so we're able to upskill young people in these enterprise skills as we call them. So they're able to transfer them from different jobs to different careers and different occupations altogether. And I still find that fascinating. And it's research that I really I really promote to young people to have a look at and really map their actions towards where are they are going and where do they wanna be? And use it as a bit of a framework to understand their own thinking.
1: So what's really interesting here, you know, uh, Michael, is that so much of what you're sharing with us is interconnected to the transfer of knowledge and skills from one context to the other, but it's also the interconnectedness to people's real lives, you know, the mm. real context of it. So, so school is a, is a, is a social co- a construct uh, that's, that's been designed ultimately for, for about academic prowess. But of course, there are many of us agitating for it to be something else going forward. Yeah. So much of the work of Foundation for Young Australians looks at these enterprise skills that you've touched upon with digital literacy, creativity, problem solving, Mm. uh, some of the the key factors right at the top of all their research about the the necessary skill sets that young people are going to need to thrive, to use your word, to thrive in, in the future. What is it you think we could be doing right now to shift the hearts and minds of school leaders, school systems, to move from the binary thinking and this weddedness of the standardised test of the, of the one-size-fits-all, of the industrial model that, that you, you even struggle within to find your place and voice, how can we help them see that we are now living in a brand new world, that there's an interconnectedness around culture, around care, around community and connection that runs deeper than a league table or an ATAR score, that it runs deeper because you know, as I said earlier, everyone's coming to life. How can we? What, what can we say to these organisations that are leading our schooling systems, independent, public and Catholic, to help
2: them shift from this, this hold to the status quo? Adrian, that is the million dollar question. Um, and if I had an answer to that, I think I would be a millionaire. Um, <laughs> but really, I think the biggest shift that will happen is through COVID-19. And that might be an odd answer, but I think there's two things that COVID-19 has done for the education system and the employment system. One is that it's accelerated. So we're seeing change happen on a policy level, both with employment and education, to do with the ATAR system, that have been conversations we've been having for, I, I dare say, uh, for a decade or more, that have now been implemented. And the other thing that it's done, it's revealed. So, you know, there were already pre-existing disadvantages that existed within the education system, like you mentioned. But what we're seeing is that COVID-19 has revealed the stark, not only geographic inequalities, but digital divide that is happening across Victoria and Australia. So I think it's a burning platform for which we can have a lot of change. And if you look at any country that's gone through significant and rapid and drastic change for the education system for the better, if you look at Poland, Korea and Finland, for instance, you see that most of their education system was born out of a need to change you know korea was under dictatorship for i think about 20 years finland was going through a recession and poland was coming out of um, communism i believe so it provided a really big burning platform to be able to change the education system for the better because they had to and i think covid 19 does provide a platform for our school leadership and our school leaders to change i think the broader question is are they ready for that change
0: and what do you think, Michael, helps people become ready for change? I mean, you're a guy, you just, I mean, you, you come across as really cool, calm and collected. And I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that in a moment. <laughs> but, but what is it that gets people ready for change? Because as we go around schools all over Australia and all over the world, it's really clear those who are ready for it and those who aren't. You know, so what do you think helps people become
2: ready for change? I'm a big reader in books to do with habits, as Adriana would know. So one of my favourite books is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, Great book. Um, And it forms a lot of my work about systems thinking and and habits overall, but there is a framework that he refers to where he calls the four laws of behaviour change. And I'm really curious to see how these four laws could apply not only to educational leaders for change, but also employment policy for change. So the first one is like, If we want to change a behavior fundamentally, whether it's an individual, a school, a principal or a system is like, how can we make that change obvious? So what is that change that we want to have? How can we make it the default for any school leader for any school system to go into? The second one is, you know, how can we make change attractive? So what are the incentives and environmental design that we have at the moment that would prompt leaders to change for the better? What's in it for them? I think at the moment, we have a lot of sticks that we make either employers do a certain thing or schools to do a certain thing. You know, Adriana, you mentioned before about the standardized testing, you know, that's a lot of sticks that we have to make schools change. I don't think that works. So, you know, what incentives can we have to make them change? The other one is, you know, how can we make it easy to change? Just simply reducing the friction of change would help a lot um, and make it easy for either school principals or even employers to change their practices. And the last one is, you know, how can we make it satisfying? I think you know, we don't need to just think of financial rewards, but if you create a coalition of change and sort of a social movement, I think you'll be able to have momentum and inertia to be able to create that change across not only just one school and one leader, but across the whole system. And I know it sounds very simplistic, the way I'm putting it, but I think these are levers that you can have. And if you put the levers in the right place, you can achieve you know, fantastic change across a broad range of different complex challenges, and education is probably the most complex of them all.
1: Michael, everything you're saying is very much in concert with uh, the work of uh, A School for Tomorrow and, and the history of both Phil and myself uh, in education. So much of what you're saying also is based on a values proposition. We're gonna start with the, with the end in mind, and we're gonna work backwards. And, and ultimately, that should be the, the intrinsic motivation and incentive to change, not so that we get a better score, how we can transform these these lives. I'm interested in what's Michael Lim's mission statement? What's your succinct values proposition that governs your constitution on a daily basis?
2: Oh, that's a good one. I think, I don't know if I'd have a statement, but I think the criteria that I have for any work that I do or any person that I work with, one would be, is it creating value? So is it having a positive impact on the target population community that we're working with? The second one is impact. So it's really about what type of impact do I wanna have on this community? um, And who do I wanna have that impact with? Um, And the third one is really about, I think, freedom. I think one of the biggest um, values that I have in my work is that choice of freedom, being able to work on projects that really interest me and having that sense of freedom to follow my curiosity into whatever that may lead me and having that freedom to explore, experiment, iterate, test, because I think with the challenges that we face in any system, whether that's education or employment, we need to be able to have that lead time, that air cover to be able to experiment and test and iterate because some of the complex challenges, they're not linear, but yet we take a linear approach to problem solving to solve them. So I think having more design thinking, um, having more room to fail is a way that we can go about creating really long-term and sustainable change. And I sort of went on a, on a tangent there, but that's sort of, sort of the three things that I'm looking at really um, in my own sort of values, props or the criteria that I use to evaluate the work that I do.
0: Michael, I'm hearing a, uh, a rather coarse Glaswegian accent on my shoulder right now, which <laughs> sounds very much like the chair of uh, School for Tomorrow, John Layson, who's very, very big on this notion that in all human communities, the exchanges between people in them must be about very tangible exchange of value. Yeah. So school teachers, chalkies can find that quite difficult though, particularly when they're in love with the idea of lifelong learning and learning is something which is just intrinsic, is just inherent and you should just love it and etc. etc. et cetera, et cetera. And it's one of the things that makes people very passionate about their roles as teachers, but uh, they can also lose touch with the intense pragmatism of an adolescent. Mm. which is all about very, very tangible and immediate value. Dig into value a little bit more and share with us your understanding of what makes something in education
2: valuable. I think value, whether it's in education or employment, fundamentally is what problem are you solving? So for a young person in education, what problem are you solving for them? And the education system should be systematically reducing barriers to solving problems. Um, But I think that's what value should be. I mean, I think that's probably the shortest and simplest way to put it is value should be about solving problems for real people in real life situations, in real systems.
0: So how do we help people within education to understand that the person who defines the problem is the person who has the autonomy over the solution? In other words, how do we get into the heads and hearts of students better so that we can find the problems that they need solved and the purpose that they need to develop rather than us impose what we want on that.
2: I'm pretty radical in this approach. And you know I've been doing a lot of reading um, and I forgot what the actual initiative was, but it was an experiment done in the slums of India where they gave school children an iPad and no other instructions at all. Just access to an iPad and the internet. And they came back a week later, and what happened was that these children managed to jailbreak this iPad, put all the apps they needed on it, and then they created an economy of education for themselves. So, what happened is that you saw older children teaching younger children who were then again teaching even younger children. And I think it's this law of evolution that children are inherently curious beings, and that if we devolve enough power and autonomy to them and give them the right tools to be able to achieve or want to achieve, sorry, have the tools to be able to explore their curiosities. I think we won't even have to ask them that question. They already intrinsically know it. So in other words, I mean, that's that's
0: Sagata Mitra's hole-on-the-wall experiment. That's right, Um, yeah. The the key to that is that we need to value students and recognise that they value their education. If we make the assumption that they don't value it, that we're fighting against a lack of interest or a lack of curiosity that somehow we need to force an education upon people as opposed to respecting their agency, respecting their autonomy, respecting their choices along the way, then we're really going to be pushing it. I want to switch direction for a moment. Um, Our listeners can't see what I can see right now, which is the wall behind your left shoulder. There are 15 perfectly spaced pink post-it notes that are sitting on your corkboard right now. Yeah. You're a very organized person. You're a very focused person. Does it ever switch off?
2: Uh, in short, no. Um, I, I think it's one of the things that I need to actively do is switch off more, but I find it really difficult to actually sleep if I don't read or learn something every day it's a curiosity that I've developed, but it's also been a curiosity that's become a bit of a curse at the moment. And it's, yeah, I, I guess it's something that I, I do need to work on and being able to switch off more often. And even with my work with wildlife it's something that sort of doesn't end at five o'clock because I live in the community and in the areas that we work in through wildlife and through the young people and even through our clients, you know, I run into clients at shopping centers, I run into clients at gyms. So it's, it's a pain where I don't really switch off, but, um, I'm really fortunate in being able to choose, to be able to choose a job and have the freedom to work on projects that are so passionate about and, I'm so, and that has so much impact for the community that I live in. But yeah, I, 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 it's a very small problem, I think, in my eyes to have.
1: Well, it might be right now, but it's one thing that uh, I, it took me a very long time to learn and that was to, to find opportunities to retreat and, re- and be open to receiving the, the generosity of others looking out for myself being a driven individual who wanting to make a difference not only in in my life but of course the lives of the people around me and particularly most of my career has been in Melbourne's West apart from one experience in the East but finding opportunities to retreat and recharge are going to be as crucial as the work that you're doing because if we're not well we're no good to anyone but I'm sure you're finding your way through that I want to finish I want to finish with this quote interestingly, you both have touched upon Sagata Mitra, and this is a quote from him. It's quite fashionable to say that the education system's broken. It's not broken. It's wonderfully constructed. It's just that we don't need it anymore. It's outdated. And I think what today's conversation with you, Michael, has illustrated in a profound way is that quote is exactly spot on. It's a system that was designed for a particular purpose and it continues to function in that purpose and it can do that exceptionally well. But we now know that it no longer serves us because it's outdated because we, as you have beautifully illustrated in our conversation, we now live in a world, the environment that calls us to be something else, that requires uh, every young person to move from the position of simply being hardwired to survive, to move to the position and the transformation of where they can thrive and take ownership of their own life where choice, voice and agency become the construct, not control, compliance. Mm. Uh, Michael, it's actually been an absolute delight to to actually have this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, It has been illuminating that a young man uh, with your passion, particularly for disadvantage, continues to work in a space where you are making serious difference. I know our listeners are going to gain from it. And I'm hoping that there are school leaders out there that can tap into your values, your values proposition uh, and your mission so they can transform their communities. So they too can be ones that are making a difference in a more meaningful way and not just simply about improving someone's academic prowess. Thank you very much for being on Game Changers.
2: No, thank you so much, Adriana and Phil. This has been fantastic. I think it's a great opportunity to to talk about it and have these really meaningful conversations. So thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Michael. Michael Lim, responsible citizen. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, Tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do, let's go.